Chapter Fifteen of The Seaboard Parish. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Seaboard Parish by George MacDonald. Chapter Fifteen The Old Church. The awe that dwells in churches fell upon me as I crossed the threshold an awe I never fail to feel, heightened in many cases, no doubt, by the sense of antiquity and of art, but an awe which I have felt all the same in crossing the threshold of an old Puritan conventicle, as the place where men worship and have worshipped the God of their fathers, although for art there was only the science of common bricklaying, and for beauty staring ugliness. To the involuntary fancy, the air of petition and of holy need seems to linger in the place, and the uncovered head acknowledges the sacred symbols of human inspiration and divine revealing. But this was no ordinary church into which I followed the gentlewoman who was my guide. As entering I turned my eyes eastward, a flush of subdued glory invaded them from the chancel, all the windows of which were of richly stained glass and the roof of carved oak lavishly gilded. I had my thoughts about this chancel, and thence about chancels generally, which may appear in another part of my story. Now I have to do only with the church, not with the cogitations to which it gave rise. But I will not trouble my reader with even what I could tell him of the blending and contradicting of styles and modes of architectural thought in the edifice. Age is to the work of contesting human hands a wonderful harmonizer of differences. As nature brings into harmony all fractures of her frame, and even positive intrusions upon her realm, clothes and discolors them, in the old sense of the word, so that at length there is no immediate shock at sight of that which in itself was crude and is yet coarse, so the various architecture of this building had been gone over after the builders by the musical hand of Eld, with wonder of delicate transition and change of key, that one could almost fancy the music of its exquisite organ had been at work, informing the building, half melting the sutures, wearing the sharpness and blending the angles, until in some parts there was but the gentle flickering of the original conception left. All its self-assertion vanished under the file of the air and the gnawing of the worm. True, the hand of the restorer had been busy, but it had wrought lovingly and gently, and wherein it had erred, the same influences of nature, though as yet their effects were invisible, were already at work, of the many making one. I will not trouble my reader, I say, with any architectural description which possibly even more than a detailed description of natural beauty disassociated from human feeling would only weary him even if it were not unintelligible when we are reading a poem we do not first of all examine the construction and dwell on the rhymes and rhythms all that comes after if we find that the poem itself is so good that its parts are therefore worth examining as being probably good in themselves, and elucidatory of the main work. There were carvings on the ends of the benches all along the aisle on both sides, well worth examination, and some of them even of description, but I shall not linger on these. A word only about the columns, 
They supported arches of different fashion on the opposite sides, but they were themselves similar in matter and construction, both remarkable. They were of coarse granite of the country, chiseled, but very far from smooth, not to say polished. Each pillar was a single stone with chamfered sides. Walking softly through the ancient house, forgetting in the many thoughts that arose within me that I had a companion, I came at length into the tower, the basement of which was open, forming part of the body of the church. There hung many ropes through holes in the ceiling above, for bell-ringing was encouraged, and indeed practiced by my friend Shepherd. And as I regarded them, I thought within myself how delightful it would be, if in these days, as in those of Samuel, the word of God was precious, so that when it came to the minister of his people, a fresh vision of his glory, a discovery of his meaning, he might make haste to the church and into the tower, lay hold of the rope that hung from the deepest-toned bell of all, and constrain it by the force of strong arms to utter its voice of call. Come hither, come here, my people, for God hath spoken. And from the streets or the lanes would troop the eager folk. The plough be left in the furrow, the cream in the churn, and the crowding people bring faces into the church, all with one question upon them, What hath the Lord spoken? But now it would be answer sufficient to such a call to say, But what will become of the butter? Or, An hour's ploughing will be lost. And the clergy, how would they bring about such a time? They do not even believe that God has a word to his people through them. They think that his word is petrified for use in the Bible and prayer book, that the wise men of old heard so much of the word of God and have so set it down that there is no need for any more words of the Lord coming to the prophets of Elaine. Therefore they look down upon the prophesying, that is, the preaching of the word, make light of it, the best of them, say these prayers are everything, are all but everything, their hearts are not set upon hearing what God the Lord will speak, that they may speak it abroad to his people again. Therefore it is no wonder if the church bells are obedient only to the clock, are no longer subject to the spirit of the minister, and have nothing to do in telegraphing between heaven and earth. They make little of this part of their duty, and no wonder if what is to be spoken must remain such as they speak. They put the church for God, and the prayers which are the word of man to God, for the word of God to man. But when the prophets see no vision, how should they have any word to speak? These thoughts were passing through my mind when my eye fell upon my guide. She was seated against the south wall of the tower, on a stool, I thought, or a small table. While I was wandering about the church, she had taken her stocking and wires out of her pocket, and was now knitting busily. How her needles did go! Her eyes never regarded them, however, but, fixed on the slabs that paved the tower at a yard or two from her feet, seemed to be gazing far out to sea, for they had an infinite, objectless outlook. To try her, I took for the moment the position of an accuser. "'So you don't mind working in church?' I said. When I spoke she instantly rose, her eyes turned as from the far sea-waves to my face, and light came out of them. 
With a smile she answered, The church knows me, sir. And what has that to do with it? I don't think she minds it. We are told to be diligent in business, you know, sir. Yes, but it does not say in church and out of church. You could be diligent somewhere else, couldn't you? As soon as I said this, I began to fear that she would think I meant it. But she only smiled and said, It won't hurt she, sir. And my good man, who does all he can to keep her tidy, is out at toes and heels. And if I don't keep he warm, he'll be laid up, and then the church won't be kept up nice, sir, till he's up again. I was tempted to go on. But you could have sat down outside. There are some nice gravestones near and waited till I came out. But what's the church for, sir? The sun's wary hot today, sir, and Mr. Shepherd, he say, sir, that the church is like the shadow of a great rock in a weary land. So you see, if I was to sit out in the sun, instead of coming in here to the cool of the shadow, I wouldn't be taking the church at her word. It does my heart good to sit in the old church, sir. There's something do seem to come out of the old walls and settle down like the cool of the day upon my old heart that's nearly tired of crying, and would fain keep its eyes dry for the rest of the journey. My old man's stocking won't hurt the church, sir, and being a good deed, as I suppose it is, it's none the worse for the place. I think, if he was to come by with the whip of small cords, I wouldn't be afeard of his laying it upon my old back. Do you think he would, sir? Thus driven to speak as I thought, I made haste to reply, more delighted with the result of my experiment than I cared to let her know. Indeed I do not. I was only talking. It is but selfish, cheating, or ill-done work that the church's master drives away. All our work ought to be done in the shadow of the church. I thought you'd be only having a talk about it, sir, she said, smiling her sweet old smile. Nobody knows what this old church is to me. Now the old woman had a good husband, apparently. The sorrows which had left their mark even upon her smile must have come from her family, I thought. You have had a family? I asked, interrogatively. I've had thirteen, she answered. Six bays and seven maidens. Why, you are rich, I returned. And where are they all? Four maidens be lying in the churchyard, sir, two be married, and one be down in the mill there. And your boys? One of them be lying beside his sisters, drowned afore my eyes, sir. Three of them be at sea, and two of them in it, sir. At sea, I thought. What a wide where! As vague to the imagination almost as in the other world. How a mother's thoughts must go roaming about the waste, like birds that have lost their nest, to find them. As this thought kept me silent for a few moments, she resumed. It be no wonder, be it, sir, that I like to creep into the church with my knitting. Many's the stormy night when my husband couldn't keep still, but would be out on the cliffs or on the breakwater for no good in life but just to hear the roar of the waves that he could only see by the white of them with the balls of foam flying in his face in the dark many's the such a night that i have left the house after he was gone and with this blessed key in my hand crept into the old church here and sat down where i'm sitting now 
leastways where I was sitting when your reverence spoke to me, and hearkened to the wind howling about the place. The church windows never rattle, sir, like the cottage windows, as I suppose you know, sir. Somehow I feel safe in the church. But if you had sons at sea, I said, again wishing to draw her out, it would not be of much good to you to feel safe yourself, so long as they were in danger. Oh, yes, it be, sir. What's the good of feeling safe yourself, but it lets you know other people be safe too? It's when you don't feel safe yourself that you feel other people being safe. But, I said, and such confidence I had from what she had already uttered that I was sure the experiment was not a cruel one. Some of your sons were drowned for all that you say about their safety. Well, sir, she answered with a sigh, I trust they're none the less safe for that. It would be a strange thing for an old woman like me, well nigh threescore and ten, to suppose that safety lay in not being drowned. Why, they might have been cast up on a desert island and wasted to skin and bone and got home again with the loss of half the wits they set out with. Wouldn't that have been worse than getting drowned right off? And that wouldn't have been the worst, either. The church, she seemed to tell me all the time that for all the roaring outside there be really no danger after all. What matter if they go to the bottom? What is the bottom of the sea, sir? You being a clergyman can tell that, sir. I should have known if I hadn't had boys of my own at sea, sir. But you can tell, sir, though you ain't got none there. And though she was putting her parson to his catechism, the smile that returned on her face was as modest as if she had been listening to his instruction. I had not long to look for my answer. The hollow of his hand, I said, and said no more. I thought you would know it, sir, she returned, with a little glow of triumph in her tone. Well, then, that's just what the church tells me when I come in here on stormy nights. I bring my knitting then, too, sir, for I can knit in the dark as well as in the light almost. And when they come home, if they do come home, they're none the worse that I went to the old church to pray for them. There it goes, roaring about them, poor dears, all out there, and their old mother sitting still as a stone almost in the quiet old church, a-caring for them. And then it do come across me, sir, that God be a-sittin' in his own house at home, hearing all the noise and all the roaring in which his children are tossed about in the world, watching it all, letting it drown some of em and take them back to him, and keeping it from going too far with others of them that are not quite ready for that same. I have my thoughts, you see, sir though I be an old woman, and not nice to look at. I had come upon a genius. How nature laughs at our schools sometimes. Education, so-called, is a fine thing, and might be a better thing, but there is an education, that of life, which, when seconded by a pure will to learn, leaves the schools behind even as the horse of the desert would leave behind the slow pomposity of the common-fed goose. For life is God's school, and they that will listen to the master there will learn at God's speed. For one moment, I am ashamed to say, I was envious of Shepherd, and repined that, now old Rogers was gone, 
I had no such glorious old stained-glass window in my church to let in the eternal upon my light-thirsty soul. I must say for myself that the feeling lasted but for a moment, and that no sooner had the shadow of it passed, and the true light shined after it, than I was heartily ashamed of it. Why should not Shepherd have this old woman as well as I? True, Shepherd was more of what would now be called a ritualist than I. True, I thought my doctrine simpler, and therefore better than his. But was this any reason why I should have all the grand people to minister to in my parish? Recovering myself, I found her last words still in my ears. You are very nice to look at, I said. You must not find fault with the work of God, because you would like better to be young and pretty than to be as you are now. Time and time's rents and furrows are all his making and his doing. God makes nothing ugly. Are you quite sure of that, sir? I paused. Such a question from such a woman must give us pause. And as I paused, the thought of certain animals flashed into my mind, and I could not insist that God had never made anything ugly. No. I am not sure of it, I answered. For of all things my soul recoiled from, any professional pretense of knowing more than I did know seemed to me the most repugnant to the spirit and mind of the Master, whose servants we are, or but the servants of mere priestly delusion and self-seeking. But if he does, I went on to say, it must be that we may see what it is like, and therefore not like it. Then, unwilling all at once to plunge with her into such an abyss as the question opened, I turned the conversation to an object on which my eyes had been for some time resting half unconsciously. It was the sort of stool or bench on which my guide had been sitting. I now thought that it was some kind of box or chest. It was curiously carved in old oak, very much like the ends of the benches and bookboards. "'What is that you were sitting on?' I asked. A chest, or what? It be there when we came to this place, and that be nigh fifty years agone, sir. But what it be, you'll be better able to tell than I be, sir. Perhaps a chest for holding the communion plate in old time, I said. But how should it then come to be banished to the tower? No, sir, it can't be that. It be some sort of ancient musical piano, I be thinking. I stooped and saw that its lid was shaped like the cover of an organ. With some difficulty I opened it, and there, to be sure, was a row of huge keys, fit for the fingers of a cyclops. I pressed upon them, one after another, but no sound followed. They were stiff to the touch, and once down, so they mostly remained until lifted again. I looked if there was any sign of a bellows, thinking it must have been some primitive kind of reed instrument, like what we call a seraphine or harmonium nowadays. But there was no hole through which there could have been any communication with or from a bellows, although there might have been a small one inside. There were, however, a dozen little round holes in the fixed part of the top, which might afford some clue to the mystery of its former life. I could not find any way of reaching the inside of it, so strongly was it put together. Therefore I was left, I thought, to the efforts of my imagination alone, for any hope of discovery with regard to the instrument, seeing further observation was impossible. 
but here I found that I was mistaken in two important conclusions, the latter of which depended on the former. The first of these was that it was an instrument. It was only one end of an instrument. Therefore, secondly, there might be room for observation still. But I found this out by accident, which has had a share in most discoveries, and which, meaning a something that falls into our hands unlooked for, is so far an unobjectionable word even to the man who does not believe in chance. I had for the time given up the question as insoluble, and was gazing about the place, when, glancing up at the holes in the ceiling through which the bell ropes went, I spied two or three thick wires hanging through the same ceiling close to the wall, and right over the box with the keys. The vague suspicion of a discovery dawned upon me. "'Have you got a key to the tower?' I asked. "'No, sir, but I'll run home for it at once,' she answered, and rising, she went out in haste. "'Run,' thought I, looking after her, "'it is a word of the will and the feeling, not of the body.' But I was mistaken. The dear old creature had no sooner got outside of the churchyard, within which, I presume, she felt that she must be decorous, than she did run, and ran well, too. I was on the point of starting after her at full speed to prevent her from hurting herself, but reflecting that her own judgment ought to be as good as mine, in such a case I returned, and sitting down on her seat awaited her reappearance, gazing at the ceiling. There I either saw or imagined I saw signs of openings corresponding in number and position with those in the lid under me. In about three minutes the old woman returned, panting but not distressed, with a great crooked old key in her hand. Why are all the keys of a church so crooked? I did not ask her that question, though. What I said to her was, You shouldn't run like that. I'm in no hurry. Be you not, sir? I thought, by the way you spoke, you'd be taken with a longing to get atop of the tower and see all about you like. For you see, sir, fond as I be of the old church, I do feel sometimes as if she'd smother me, and then nothing will do but I must get at the top of the old tower. And then, what with the sun, if there be any sun, and what with the fresh air, which there always be up there, sir. It do always be fresh up there, sir, she repeated. I come back down again, blessing the old church for its tower. As she spoke, she was toiling up the winding staircase after me, where there was just room enough for my shoulders to get through by turning themselves a little across the lie of the steps. They were very high, but she kept up with me bravely, bearing out her statement that she was no stranger to them. As I ascended, however, I was not thinking of her, but of what she had said. Strange to tell, the significance of the towers or the spires of our churches had never been clear to me before. True, I was quite aware to their significance, at least to that of the spires, as fingers pointing ever upwards to regions mild of calm and serene air, above the smoke and stir of this dim spot which men call earth. But I had not thought of their symbolism as lifting one up above the church itself into a region where no church is wanted, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. Happy church indeed, if it destroys the need of itself by lifting men up into the eternal kingdom. Would that I and all her servants lived pervaded with the sense of this her high end, her one high calling. 
We need the church towers to remind us that the mephitic airs in the church below are from the churchyard at its feet, which so many take for the church, worshipping over the graves and believing in death, or at least in the material substance over which alone death hath power. Thus the church, even in her corruption, lifts us out of her corruption, sending us up her towers and her spires to admonish us that she too lives in the air of truth, that her form too must pass away, while truth that is embedded in her lives beyond forms and customs and prejudices, shining as the stars for ever and ever. He whom the church does not lift up above the church is not worthy to be a doorkeeper therein. Such thoughts passed through me, satisfied me, and left me peaceful, so that before I had reached the top I was thanking the Lord, not for his church tower, but for his sexton's wife. The old woman was a jewel. If her husband was like her, which was too much to expect, if he believed in her it would be enough, quite, then indeed the little child, who answered on being questioned there and at, as the Scotch would say, that the three orders of ministers in the church were the parson, clerk, and sexton, might not be so far wrong in respect of this individual case. So in the ascent, and the thinking associated therewith, I forgot all about the special object for which I had requested the key of the tower, and led the way myself up to the summit, where stepping out of a little door, which being turned only heavenwards had no pretense for, or claim upon a curiously crooked key, but open to the hand laid upon the latch, I thought of the words of the judicious hooker, that the assembling of the church to learn was the receiving of angels descended from above. And in such a whimsical turn as our thoughts will often take, when we are not heeding them, I wondered for a moment whether that was why the upper door was left on the latch, forgetting that that could not be of much use if the door in the basement was kept locked with the crooked key. But the whole suggested something true about my own heart and that of my fellows, if not about the church. Revelation is not enough. The open trap-door is not enough if the door of the heart is not open likewise. As soon, however, as I stepped out upon the roof of the tower, I forgot again all that had thus passed through my mind, swift as a dream. For, filling the west, lay the ocean beneath, with a dark curtain of storm hanging in perpendicular lines over part of its horizon, and on the other side was the peaceful solid land, with its numberless shades of green, its heights and hollows, its farms and wooded vales, there was not much wood, its scattered villages and country dwellings, lighted and shadowed by the sun and the clouds. Beyond lay the blue heights of Dartmoor, and over all, bathing us as it passed, moved the wind, the life-bearing spirit of the whole, the servant of the sun. The old woman stood beside me, silently enjoying my enjoyment, with a still smile that seemed to say, in kindly triumph, Was I not right about the tower and the wind that dwells among the pinnacles? I drank deep of the universal flood, the outspread peace, the glory of the sun, and the haunting shadow of the sea that lay beyond us like the visual image of eternal silence as it looks to us, that rounds our little earthly life. There were a good many trees in the churchyard, and as I looked down, 
the tops of them in their richest foliage hid all the graves directly below me even a single flat stone looking up through an opening in the leaves which seemed to have been just made for it to let it see the top of the tower upon the stone a child was seated playing with a few flowers she had gathered not once looking up to the gilded veins that rose from the four pinnacles at the corners of the tower i turned to the eastern side and looked over upon the church roof it lay far below looking very narrow and small but long with the four ridges of four steep roofs stretching away to the eastern end it was in excellent repair for the parish was almost in one lord's possession and he was proud of his church between them he and mr shepherd had made it beautiful to behold and strong to endure when i turned to look again the little child was gone some butterfly fancy had seized her and she was away a little lamb was in her place nibbling at the grass that grew at the side of the next mound and when i looked seaward there was a sloop like a white-winged seabird rounding the end of a high projecting rock from the south to bear up the little channel that led to the gates of the harbour canal out of the circling waters it had flown home not from a long voyage but hardly the less welcome therefore to those that waited and looked for her signal from the barrier rock re-entering by the angel's door to descend the narrow corkscrew stair so dark and cool i caught a glimpse one turned down by the feeble light that came through its chinks after it was shut behind us of a tiny maidenhair fern growing out of the wall i stopped and said to the old woman i have a sick daughter at home or i wouldn't rob your tower of this lovely little thing well sir what eyes you have i never saw that thing before do take it home to miss it'll do her good to see it i be main sorry to hear you've got a sick maiden she bean't a bedlar be she sir i was busy with my knife getting out all the roots i could without hurting them and before i had succeeded i had remembered turner's using the word not quite that i answered but she can't even sit up and must be carried everywhere poor dear everyone's had their troubles sir the sea's been mine she continued talking and asking kind questions about connie as we went down the stair not till she opened a little door i had passed without observing it as we came up was i reminded of my first object in ascending the tower for this door revealed a number of bells hanging in silent power in the brown twilight of the place i entered carefully for there were only some planks laid upon the joists to keep one's feet from going through the ceiling in a few moments i had satisfied myself that my conjecture about the keys below was correct the small iron rods i had seen from beneath hung down from this place there was more of them hanging shorter above and there was yet enough of a further mechanism remaining to prove that those keys by means of the looped and cranked rods had been in connection with hammers one of them indeed remaining also which struck the bells so that a tune could be played upon them as upon any other keyed instrument this was the first contrivance of the kind i had ever seen though i have heard of it in other churches since if i could find a clever blacksmith in the neighbourhood now i said to myself i would get all this repaired 
so that it would not interfere with the bell ringing when the ringers were to be had, and yet Shepherd could play a psalm tune to his parish at large when he pleased. For Shepherd was a very fair musician, and gave a good deal of time to the organ. It's a grand notion to think of him sitting here in the gloom, with that great musical instrument towering above him, whence he sends forth the voice of gladness, almost of song to his people, while they are mowing the grass, binding the sheaves, or gazing abroad over the stormy ocean, in doubt, anxiety, and fear. There's the parson at his bells, they would say, and stop and listen, and some phrase might sink into their hearts, waking some memory, or giving birth to some hope or faint aspiration. I will see what can be done. Having come to this conclusion, I left the abode of the bells, descended to the church, bade my conductress good morning, saying I would visit her soon in her own house, and bore home to my child the spoil which, without Kirk Rapine, I had torn from the wall of the sanctuary. By this time the stormy veil had lifted from the horizon, and the sun was shining in full power without one darkening cloud. Ere I left the churchyard, I would have a glance at the stone, which ever seemed to lie gazing up at the tower. I soon found it, because it was the only one in that quarter from which I could see the top of the tower. It recorded the life and death of an aged pair, who had been married fifty years, concluding with the couplet, A long time this may seem to be, but it did not seem long to we. The whole story of a human life lay in that last verse. True, it was not good grammar, but they had got through fifty years of wedded life, probably without any knowledge of grammar, to harmonize or to shorten them, and, I dare say, had they been acquainted with the lesson he had put into their dumb mouths, they would have been aware of no ground of quarrel with the poetic stone-cutter, who had most likely thrown the verses in when he made his claim for the stone and the cutting. Having learned this one by heart, I went about looking for anything more in the shape of sepulchral flora that might interest or amuse my crippled darling. Nor had I searched long before I found one, the sole but triumphant recommendation of which was the thorough puzzle-headedness of its construction. I quite reckoned on seeing Connie trying to make it out, looking as bewildered over its excellent grammar as the poet of the other ought to have looked over his rhymes, ere he gave in to the use of the nominative after a preposition. If you could view the heavenly shore, where heart's content you hope to find, you would not murmur where you gone before, but grieve that you are left behind. End of chapter 15